Now, it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Lisa Luckett, an entrepreneur, a speaker, mother of three young adults, an author. She joins us this morning to share her memoir, The Light in 9-11, Shocked by Kindness, Healed by Love, because Lisa is also a 9-11 widow. I feel privileged to have Lisa join us today, close to the 17th anniversary of that tragic day, and to inspire us with how she is making her life count. Lisa Luckett, good morning, and so many thanks for being with us once again. Thank you, Kate Daniels. It's a pleasure and an honor to talk to my friends in Bellevue, Washington. This is great. Oh, it is great to have you. And we were just commenting that uh, it's been two years since we first connected and had a really interesting conversation then about 9-11 and your very personal connection there. And you were talking about writing a book, and here we are. Yes, I am very excited about the fact that I did finish it. But your conversation we had in uh, around the 15th anniversary two years ago was really helpful in showing me that it was important to write a book because the goal here is for me to take this story out into the world and be a public speaker and share this incredible gift that I've gotten as a result of the catalyst of 9-11, which ended up for me being this remarkable personal growth through struggle and pain. So the messages of this new book, which is called The Light in 9-11, Shocked by Kindness, Healed by Love, it's about finding light in any trauma and the healing power of kindness. And that is something that all of us need so much to become aware of. Maybe we have a little inkling, but certainly with what you experienced, and I think any of us would certainly recognize with even the little bit of connection we have with 9-11, your personal connection, your husband being in the tower, the tower collapsing, I don't know of anything that could be much more devastating than that. Well, it's interesting. You know, for you guys out on the West Coast, it was more of a news story, actually, um, as the Oklahoma City bombings and the Columbine shootings were for us here on the East Coast. Um, Interestingly, my brother has lived in Seattle for over 40 years. So he was the only person within his friend group that actually knew someone personally who died. Um, So it's an interesting, there's an interesting conversation around geography. Um, It certainly changed everyone's life in the sense that we've never traveled the same way since. Just in the sheer hassle factor of going through the airport now. And just the fear factor on a global, national, international basis of just the terroristic aspect of things, that it really did lodge itself, certainly in the American population, definitely in the population between Boston and Washington, which is actually, there's a term for that, it's called the megalopolis. And I really just like saying that word. (laughs) But um, that's about 50 million people that were truly personally connected to the event, which is why it the magnitude of it on top of just the drama of watching those two towers collapse in real time on national and international television because we had an hour plus to turn it on and watch it ourselves. So there's so much that's unique about 9-11, but at the same time, we all experienced it differently. And um, that's not to say anybody's pain is greater or lesser than anyone else's. True. Although I would say, yes, here, uh, there were a couple things. We were so distanced from it, and yet I think there was this connection because it was our country where we had felt like, oh, we were pretty invincible. All of a sudden, we begin to see our vulnerability. 
Absolutely, Kate. And that's the truth. I mean, we as a country have been sitting between two oceans and two benign neighbors. So, and we're a pretty young country at that. We're, we're only 250 years old or 500, depending on how you want to count it. So while we think we have experience, we really haven't had that much experience. And so this really rocked our world. And so, again, and that's what the book is about. The book is, is a memoir. It's about the 17 years that I've spent studying this experience uh, while I've been raising my children, trying to offset the misinformation of my life the misinformation of society or what I'm deeming the misinformation and just finding out for myself, finding a way to put my feet on the ground where I had never felt that before. And that's what I did in the wake of 9-11 is recognize that there was within days that there was no way I would let Ted, my husband, and all the other people die in vain. I would never let those terrorists win if I had anything to say about it. But the only thing I could do to fight back was to make something good come from it. And the only way I saw to make something good was to study it and to jump in. So I had three babies, and they had a whole life ahead of them. And I needed it to be as happy and normal as possible. So I threw myself into full psychoanalytic analysis. It was the equivalent. This is how I, I hope people will see it. It's the equivalent of having... I should say 9-11 for me, and I believe for our population, was the equivalent of having every emotional bone broken simultaneously. You would go to the doctor for your body. So I went to the doctor for my mind. And that this is where we are today is the outcome of all of that. So that, just a slight digression in a way, but very important to all of this, but you're mentioning that because we are at a place too in our society of of grappling with dealing with mental health issues and in, trying to overcome a stigma, trying to see that it it's all about good health. So yes, you're pursuing that path and sharing it so openly, I think is another great gift and outcome of this. Thanks. And you, you hit it right on the head. So my, I have many, many real themes, but the number one is to shake the stigma of mental health because no one can know how you feel and no one can know what your life has been like and no one can know what happened to you five minutes before they're interacting with you. So, nor we can of other people. So that self-awareness is really important to nurture. And we have not as a culture ever really been taught any elements of emotional well-being, emotional health, emotional, uh, healthy, emotional reaction. So we're very reactive as a society because we've never taken the time and it's always been perceived as weakness to admit to any emotional pain. Well, we are emotional creatures really before we're anything else. So if you think of a baby, a baby isn't physical, right? It's not getting up and running and it's not intellectual. It's not studying yet. What is it doing? It's sensing. So we are sensory creatures first. And two questions prompted this book and the two that follow it. Why were we so emotionally unprepared to handle 9-11? And where was all the wise counsel to help us through it? So if, if you look at the event itself, and we go with the mind, body, spirit, or the, what I call the three-legged stool, why did we fall over? Because we had certainly super-served physical fitness in our culture. We've super-served academics when you know, kids are getting 4.0s and 1600s on their SATs on a regular basis. 
but we've done nothing with our emotional selves. So on 9-11, without that leg, we just tipped over. Yeah. So we can write it. We can pull it back up because now enough has happened. And what you said about mental health and what's happening in our culture, I mean, more and more and more things are being shown to us with natural disasters, with man-made disasters, with all the things that are happening. It's, it's theoretically the universe showing us that we need to address this situation that we are being challenged to look at our emotional selves and grow in this way. And we absolutely can do it. It's not a mystery. And you were just so aware in tune right from the first moments, it seems, Lisa, that this is a path you had to take. You were not going to fall victim. So there was almost that conscious decision, this is not going to devastate me. But you felt that power you I think you say it is you felt someone standing behind you I did so my my story of 9-11 which is the morning of which is when I I actually got my first spiritual guidance if you will I didn't know anything about spirituality at that point except that I, I religion had not worked for me and I could never understand the punitive aspects of religion in that how could there be an all-loving God and there still be hell and so even as a child, that did not resonate with me. So I always knew there was a higher power. I was always very interested in something like that. Um, I read the Celestine Prophecy with everyone else in the early 90s, and it was so intriguing. But 9-11 happens, and part of the story is that I was uniquely prepared um, because Teddy walked down in the explosion in 1993 from the 105th floor. And I had dealt with terrorism already. And they went back in. They went back into the targets, you know, so subconsciously that was always present. So, and then the second part was that his mother was very worried about his health, so much so, and they'd lost their father very young, um, at a young age, and she was worried that I would have the same experience. And so in her most caring way that had a reverse effect on me, she basically told me he was going to die of a heart attack every time I saw her for about 10 years, by the time we were married. What that did was it made me run his death through my mind literally hundreds of times. And I'm here to tell all of the listening public that we are powerful beings. Our minds are very powerful. We can conjure incredible pain and worry and projection. And I thought that would get myself so worked up at the thought of his death. I would be sobbing in the middle of the night. Well, fast forward to 9-11, after the initial shock of that morning in the first couple hours of the, seeing the buildings and watching them fall, I got very numb. And in that numbness, I had this very heightened awareness and this incredible calm because I, the, I had prepared myself or had been prepared and was kind of like two steps ahead of everybody else. So I was observing. Plus, when it happens to you, Everyone else is projecting the situation, their, you know, their lives, if, you know, if it was them, onto me. And it's, you're just in a different place. So you're in this very unique offensive position where you're not defending. You're, you're actually you know, in a completely different perspective. So that being said, I, I looked around the room at my house that was filled with people who were so desperately hurting and terrified and trying to help me and asking me what I needed and I was, I was more in the event itself because I couldn't get my head around Ted's death. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you, you couldn't, I couldn't comprehend it. But I was in the event 
I was in the event that our, our country had been attacked, very much so, and absolutely wanting to help my friends. And so I realized in this moment, or it wasn't a realization, I was given this understanding and a knowing, in and in an intuitive knowing, that I, in all, the only way I could help other people was to actually let my guard down, show my vulnerability, and let them help me, which was the last thing I wanted. Ego was like, absolutely not. But I did. I let go. I surrendered. I walked through that metaphoric door to be overwhelmed with the feelings of gratitude and humility. I mean, like being hit with a wave and this unbelievable feeling of love that has never left me. And it was from that second that I could not see the positive in everything amidst all of this trauma. And that is something, your experience, that you're sharing with us for anyone who has uh, trauma, who's having loss and grief in their life, to become aware of that, that there is this different way to approach it, that let that kindness and care come into your life. That's right. That's right. Because the kindness is love, right? So if we are love, loving creatures first, if love is the ultimate power and strength, that it is the healing aspect of being human. And when you allow people to help you, so it's, it's, I, I term it in the book, the cycle of healing. If I didn't let people help me, then I was blocking them from the soul food that they needed. Mm-hmm. So when you're, what people don't understand and what I didn't understand is when I would project the fear of Ted's death, into my, in my imagination, I never, ever imagined the love and care that would come flying in, flanking the situation and holding me and supporting me unconditionally. So unconditional love is a superpower. (laughs) It really is. And, but it's not loud and it's not going to correct the pain. What it does is it holds you back from tipping into the abyss of despair. Like you're, you're in this place when you're in trauma that is you're teetering on the edge of, of this unknown. This pain is so dark and it's such the dark night of the soul that you can't see out of it. And all I can say to people is just trust that it will be okay. It will, given time, it will be okay. Just don't try to, don't medicate the experience. Don't, if you know, everybody needs a little medication here or there, but it's in pain and grief is in our experience because that is part of being human and it's how we gain our wisdom. It's how we grow and how we, we deepen our experience from a soul perspective. You know, if, if we look at life as being in this third dimension on the planet that we are here actually to struggle, we are actually here for the contrast of being humanity in the third dimension, which is a little out there. I get that. But, but if you can just, if people, and one of my other themes is what I'm hoping to share with everyone with this book. And again, the the two that follow it is that we, if we can reframe struggle, reframe pain, understand that pain wouldn't be in nature if it wasn't necessary because everything in nature has a purpose. So if we can just, instead of reeling from struggle, just shift our perspective a little bit and say, wait a minute, let me lean into this because I'm being shown this for a reason. This isn't happening to me. 
this is actually happening for me. Mm-hmm. What am I supposed to be learning here? Why am I being shown this? I'm not saying it's easy, but that is ultimately why I, how I've gotten where, to where I am. Yes, life. you would want life to be different. It would be great if Teddy were still here. And yet, because that's, that's the way life uh, evolved, you're taking that experience and we can hear it in you. And as you write this book, The Light in 9-11, we can f- sense that even more as to how you've taken the experience and really grown stronger and, and more empowered through it all. Well, there's a, there's in, in, in the story, as, as people will read, I did not start out where I am <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, you're learning in your first years of your life, you know, zero to 20 are really, you know, difficult years, just trying to figure it out. And even 20 to 30 and 30 to 40, I mean, we're always growing and we're always figuring it out. But um, I don't want in any way for people to not think that I didn't love Teddy Luckett. He was my soulmate and the love of my life. But I had three little kids. There were four of us left standing. And I'd never experienced grief. I'd never lost anybody that close to me. And we married. The other part of this is you marry someone, a spouse, knowing that one of you is going to go first. And I've, I've explained over the years that 9-11 for me was Teddy's heart attack or cancer or car accident. It's how he died. And people die every day. So we have a choice in stepping up and bringing them with us forward, not in an unhealthy way, not in a victimized way, not immortalizing them as the greatest, you know, most perfect beings. They were not perfect. None of us are perfect, but we can still bring that love and, and connection with them forward, which is what I did. So Teddy's been present in, in my stories and with my children. And, and someone said to me so interestingly, in a letter after he died, that I would see my children reflected or him reflected in my children as they grew. And I had no idea what they were saying. (laughs) But I can tell you now, each of my kids has such a significant piece of him that if I was to put them together, I'd almost have a complete Ted again. I mean, it's just (laughs) so interesting. And they were really little. So it's not like they learned it from him. In fact, you you had an infant four months old at the time. Yep. Yep. Who looks just like him? <laughs> Who looks just like him physically, feet, hands, characteristics, mannerisms, humor. Yeah. So, so that's for, for, I mean, I feel that we're all in this place or our world has become so fearful and so frenetic with all, because the other one of the parts, which is for the second book, which is so to explain that a little bit, this book is a memoir. It's my story, and my hope is to connect with people so that they can relate to me on some level, mostly so that they can trust me. Because our next book is the macro study, which is, so the memoir is a micro, the next one is macro, and the macro study is the theory and philosophy that I've garnered over the last 17 years in our culture, over decade studies, you know, global neighbors, how it looks local to global uh, personal to, to social, you know, what, why? Why are we where we are today? Very much about the pivotal generation, which many of us are part of, which I was born in 1960, but I was raising children in the 90s and the 2000s. And when I was born, 
the model for parenting was still children were to be seen and not heard. 30 years later, I'm raising children where we're just working at the castle. My teddy was really funny. And he would say, you know, we're just working at the castle for the princess (laughs) where we're waiting on our children. And that 30-year swing is really confusing. Mm -hmm. But when we figure it out, it's going to help us for the next window, which is where we are now with our children who are wired very differently than we are. And they live in a world of technology. And it can't be a bad thing. Our parents thought our world was bad because it wasn't like theirs. We can do a better job of not becoming that parental voice that is judgmental and critical because we're afraid and we don't understand. They're not afraid of their world. And if we want to stay connected to our children, which is so unique now, part of that 30-year swing is we have relationships as parents with our 18 to 26-year-olds. Now, I don't know about anybody in the listening audience, but my parents basically showed me the door when I was 18, (laughs) and that was normal. Go find your life. You know, there was only a a phone call maybe once a week on a Sunday when the rates were low, long distance. Now we text every five times a day. And the interesting thing, and and then I'll stop talking, (laughs) but the interesting thing is that 9-11 was only eight years after the advent of the Internet. And John Stewart, the comedian, I watched, I was at a thing that he was posting the other day, and he said, 9-11 put CNN on the map because 24-hour news had only come on in the mid-90s, and it limped along because why do we need 24 hours worth of news? So fast forward to today, we're addicted to the news because it's taken that fear and terroristic, you know, cortisol release based on fear to garner ratings because I was in the media for 15 years. I was in radio, which is why it's a pleasure to talk to you, Kate. But because of being in that, I understand that it's not about community service and it's not except for your show, you know, shows like yours. But for the most part, television and television news is not a community service. It's really about ratings, which is really about money. Yes. Comes down to uh, all those sales. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It's part of the world. Part of our world, yeah. exactly, but we don't have to believe it all. Yes. And we don't have to watch it. Absolute yes to that. <laughs> because if it's not serving us, which often I think we can find that it isn't, we need to look for what does. So here, you know, looking at the self where you really did this deep introspection, we have the benefit in this really incredible memoir, The Light in nine eleven. I think it's something that you know we will all find value in i think we'll find connection because of how you know we said at the outset it just really impacted everyone not just in this country but globally but all of us here in this country will certainly find great value and then putting that kind of a little to the side in the process of this you also created a foundation based on that where you really are expanding that along with the philosophy into the world yes yes and so from my psychoanalytic study about 4 years into peeling back all i i describe it as actually unwinding a ball of string or a ball of yarn because an onion doesn't have nearly enough layers for that analogy. When you're looking at a lifetime, it's layers and layers and layers and layers and layers of experience and how those experiences are registered as good or bad. So there's a whole, that's how the psyche is built. 
and which is all explained in the book. But um, I was able to have the most remarkable experience because part of the story in addition is that I, about two years in, two and a half years into therapy, I wanted mental health so much. I had been struggling for my entire lifetime of being misunderstood and misunderstanding and really wanting to figure out the why of everything. Really curious, really frustrated. So that was the fuel that got me through it. So I would say to my therapist, and I was very lucky, Teddy sent me three people within six weeks of 9-11. A therapist, a woman I call my Mrs. Doubtfire to help me with the kids, and a business partner that we created this beautiful experience in that year that was this healthy distraction in helping other people because I was being showered with so much, I needed to give as well. So it was this cycle. Anyway, um, I had a great practitioner, and I would say to her, how am I going to know when I've achieved mental health? Like, what happens? Does a bell go off? Do, do they notify me by mail? Like, what actually happens? And she said to me very calmly, she paused and she said, you are going to get the most mind-blowing rush of creative energy like nothing you have ever known. And I was like, oh, I can't believe it. That's so exciting. I can't wait. I'm going to paint. I'm going to be a fine artist. I've always wanted to paint beautiful landscapes, and I'm finally going to do that. No. When I broke through, I started knitting. I started crafting because I'm a crafter. So what ended up happening is I downloaded in that moment, in that window, I break through the ceiling to mental health. One day I sat, sat up, bolt upright on the couch. I don't remember what she said that prompted it, but everything fell into place. And I sat up and I went, oh my gosh, we just have to be nice. We can cure everything in the world if people are just nice to each other. Genuinely nice. And in the next breath, I thought, wait a minute, what's happening with women? Who's taking care of women? Who's taking care of the caregiver? Because I was mother of net then, you know, more school-age children, and I could see that we were all running around like crazy people, and, but not restoring ourselves, drowning, submerged. I felt very submerged, and certainly in my life before 9-11. And, you know, trying to under, so I started knitting these big shawls for all my friends who had taken care of me and ultimately conjuring what is now a brand of kindness. And the name of kindness of the brand is called Cosmina, which is a made-up word initially about the shawls, meaning where coziness meets glamour because they're very beautiful and very simple. They're a metaphoric hug. So when you wrap them on Cosmina style, you feel like you're being held. So as a knitter, you're taking care of yourself from knitting because it's very soothing to use your fingertips and tactile touch calms your central nervous system. So women, I spoke, I taught 200 women to knit in my family room one, one by one for an hour to an hour and a half each. And then they'd come back each week to come to open knitting to be fixed and, and sit with other women and commune, just commune together in this beautiful little community. And it ended up being a study in women. So Cosmina became this brand, and it's called Cosmina Enlightened Living. And it's about finding satisfaction through your sensory input and guiding yourself through your intuition and trusting your inner knowing. So it's basically warmth, comfort, care, consideration, grace, and decency. And everything you learned in kindergarten <laughs> that we've kind of forgotten. So um, there are no unique or original thoughts. It's just repurposing much of what we've already been taught, but just putting it kind of in a new 21st century version. There is just so much that's packed into this one book, the memoir. And 
I, I hope that people, just as I'm feeling the energy from you, Lisa, and the enthusiasm and, you know, just this real breath of, of living and life in you, that to be open to life, to be open to how these experiences one could perceive as negative and painful really have just so many gifts and so much life to add to what we are doing right now. I couldn't agree more. And that's so well said. And there's many people out in the world today with this message and the world, the new communication is through story. And I'm just jumping in with lots of other people who have learned what the new handle is post-traumatic growth. PTG, I guess. I'm not a big fan of labels, but that is exactly what this is. It's taking trauma and making, you know, lemonade from lemons. And it's, it's all really choice. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It does hurt. And it hurts for a long time. But if you can lean into it and, and accept it and be open-minded like that and open your heart and do things in ways you wouldn't have done it normally, but because they cross your path, just take it. You have the strength. That's what I really want to encourage anyone I talk to. We all have remarkable strength. The human condition is very strong. And we have each other. And that's where this is going. We are supposed to come together. Because, you know, if you look at all the hurricanes, the fires, the earthquakes, not to mention the shootings and all of those things, what's happening is communities are rallying together. And in those moments, you see the best of human nature. Absolutely. The light in 9-11 was when I saw, saw the beauty and grace within our pain being showered on me in that morning. That's the light in 9-11. It's also what I call the godness. And the godness is always there. And this is from someone who does not use the term God easily. I always believed in a higher power. But I can tell you the godness is, in my definition of that, my word, goodness with one less O, comes in every traumatic experience in the form of the kindness of strangers. And this is the gift we give ourselves is to get a copy of The Light in 9-11. Uh, really, we could be continuing a longer conversation, but at the base of it, this book is going to really be such enlightenment for us. Also, your website. Let's mention that, Lisa. Uh, Kate, you're so great. Okay, so there's a website for the book, which is lisaluckett.com, L-U-C-K-E-T-T. And then the Cosmina website is Cosmina spelled C-O-Z as in zebra, M as in Mary, E-E, N as in Nancy, A, Cosmina. And it's because it's where coziness meets glamour like a pashmina. And the story's in the book on why that's named the way it is by a friend of mine. But I'm such a bad speller, I didn't know how to spell pashmina. So <laughs> Cosmina is the phonetic exp- expression of that idea. And this is my friend's word that I said, oh my gosh, that's the perfect description of this shawl at the time. And so I'd like to say that Cosmina is to kindness as a made-up word, as Xerox is to copiers, or Kleenex is to facial tissues. And my wish and dream is that one day Cosmina is a household word, meaning kindness and enlightenment, living from your intuitive self, from your trusting yourself, and this new version of wellness that we are all capable of. Oh, absolutely. Well, again, if only we had more time, but I think we've had an opportunity to touch on so many really critically important things to make our life so much better. And Lisa Luckett, we have you to thank for opening up your life and being so open about all that has transpired. Thank you so greatly for doing that and for being here this morning. 
Oh, Kate, I can't thank you enough and and all your listeners there. And as I say, because my brother's there, I feel a special kinship to the Seattle area and the Pacific Northwest. So please join me in this beautiful movement, this kindness movement that we can come together quietly and really change the world. And so it is. And so it is. And with that, we're at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Lisa Luckett and Sunday Morning Magazine with Steve Kipp who has invited us to the Big Heart Walk in October. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I'll get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, Find the podcast on our Warm 106.9 webpage. Click on the On Air tab and look for the show and guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of embracing life and living it filled with kindness. Have a week of the same and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9, the station to pick you up and make you feel good. Good morning.